Hey, good morning, Crowd family. I'm so glad you can join us today. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Hey, I want to give a shout out to Oscar Gonzalez. Hey, Big O, love you, brother. God bless you, man. Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8 is today's text. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. We're now in part 7 of our series, Doctrine and Devotion. Now, before we dive into the text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text, verses 1 and 2. And and the whole focus of the text was on two things. The first thing was obey the government. And to obey the government is to obey God who put that government in place. All government, all government is set up, in other words, established by God, and therefore we must submit to its authority. Now, we are to obey unless, say unless, it goes against the nature and character of of God and His Word. The second thing was love your neighbor. Say that, love your neighbor. And Paul goes from our relationship to the government and now turns our relationship, now turns our attention to our relationship to everybody in the community. Look at verse 1b with me, verse 1b. He says, to be ready to do whatever is good. And this in context means that we that, that we are prepared and willing to participate in activities or deeds that comes to our attention, activities or deeds that promote the welfare of the community. So listen, friends, as Christians, we should take the lead to do good works as a witness of love to our community. And then Paul continues that thought in verse 2. He says, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. So what's the result of being obedient to the government and loving our neighbor? Well, you will give Christianity credibility, and they will begin to worship God because of the good works they see coming out of your life and my life. Matthew 5.16. Matthew 5.16 says, in the same way that your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And you see, we should model good citizenship that everyone who's not a Christian cannot help but to say good things about us and glorify God in heaven. This now brings us to today's text. The title of my message today is The Way of Salvation. Everyone say that, The Way of Salvation. So Paul, after reminding Titus and others to obey the government and to love their neighbors, now reminds them of the transformation, say that, transformation they have received in Jesus Christ. Uh, Two points uh, from today's text. If you're with me, say yes. If you're ready, say yes. Point number one is this. Point number one is our godlessness. Our godlessness. Write that down. And and Paul here reminds them, and I love the fact that he includes himself. Verse 3, at one time we too were. Now, in other words, remember what we were what we used to be. And what Paul does, Paul lists the characteristics of unbelievers, in other words, of what we used to be. So he says, at one time we too were, and he says, foolish. Say that, foolish. That's the text there, foolish. In other words, we were without spiritual wisdom of understanding. Now listen, a foolish person, excuse me, a foolish person lacks understanding or literally one who is senseless or not having a mind. Ephesians 4.18, write that down. Ephesians 4.18 describes such a person. It says this, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance. Did you get that? That is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. Psalm 14, verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, 
There is no God. Now listen, no matter how smart someone is, if they're not alive spiritually, they're considered foolish. Then he says we too were disobedient. Say that, disobedient. That's a manifestation of living in rebellion under a wrong authority, which is Satan. And friends, when we live under his authority, Satan's authority, we hate the thought of submission or obedience to any authority, including God, right? Now listen, friends, any, anyone apart from Jesus is by nature rebellious, willfully disregarding authority. And what it is, it's persisting in doing what one wants to do, no matter what God says. Jonathan Edwards said this, Every unbeliever is hanging by a thread over the fires of hell, and the only thing that keeps him from falling into the flames is the hand of God. Disobedience is nothing more than saying to God, I dare you to let go. Then he says, we too were deceived, right? That's what the text says, deceived. This Greek word describes a wandering and is the root of, or for the word, is the root for our word planet. We are all prone to wander. In fact, 1 Peter 2, 25, 1 Peter chapter 2, Verse 25 says that before we were saved, we were like sheep going astray. I want you to write this down. Jeremiah 17.9. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Did you get that? The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Now, if you think about it, our biggest problem is not with others. Our biggest problem is with our heart, our heart. Now, we know that Satan is the ultimate deceiver, and what he does, he works at keeping people in the dark. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says this, The God of this age, which is Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Someone said this, we thought that we were wise to believe in evolution. We thought that we were sophisticated to throw off God's standards of moral purity. We thought that we could find happiness and fulfillment through the lusts of the flesh or by accumulating material things. We thought that we could violate God's law without any harmful consequences, but we were deceived. Deceived. Then he says this, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Did you get that? And enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived on that kind of level, right? We did. And we were in bondage to the old nature, that old nature. And in fact, Jesus taught in John chapter 8, verse 34, John 8, 34, that those who sin become slaves to sin. Now listen, church. The nature of sin is that it will, it will make you a slave. It will make you a slave. And, and just like the island of Crete, our culture is filled with all kinds of passions and all kinds of pleasures, and these sins will enslave. As 2 Peter 2.19, 2 Peter 2.19 says, For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. In fact, friends, the phrase all kinds, all kinds, because it says enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, that phrase all kinds refers to a manifold diversity, di diversity, excuse me, diversity of longings 
and unhealthy pleasures. Now the word pleasure is from the root word that is translated hedonism, which is a belief that indulgence is the chief end of life. And we hear this all the time, don't we? We hear this all the time in our culture, friends. People say things like, I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy, and I deserve to have fun. That's hedonism. And listen, those who want freedom to, to do whatever they want will eventually end up in bondage to that which they are pursuing. These sins, listen now, these sins enslave and will ultimately, listen now, destroy. Then he says, we lived in malice. Say malice. We lived in malice. It means ill will. That's what malice means, ill will towards someone else. It stems from selfishness and, and wanting our, our, our own way, even if it means harming someone to get it. This word also means, listen, badness in quality. Badness in quality. It has the idea of something that smells rotten. It's a repugnant rottenness that is directed at someone else. It desires, listen now, to destroy or cause distress or causes distress on someone else and rejoices in doing so. How sad is that? And then he says, and envy. Say envy. Envy is not just wanting what another person has, but also resenting that person for having it. And, and it's closely related to greed. Listen, an envious person is never satisfied with what he or she has and will crave and will continue, continually crave for more and more. Hey, you know what? It was, it, was, it was envy that led Ahab and Jezebel to kill Naboth in order to take his vineyard, even though, even though they already had plenty. And that's in 1 Kings chapter 21, 1 Kings 21. And it was envy that led the Pharisees to kill Jesus because he was gaining more followers than they had. That's in Mark 15.10, Mark 15.10. Write this down, Proverbs 14.30, Proverbs, Proverbs 14.30. And there it paints a vivid, vivid picture of envy. And it says this, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Envy rots the bones. And then he says, being hated and hating one another. Hatred, listen now, hatred, say that. Hatred is essentially self-centeredness and disregard for others' feelings and needs. It's, it's like this, friends. If someone hurts me and I respond by thinking or saying, I don't ever want to talk to that person again. In fact, that person can drop dead for all that I care. That's hatred. That's hatred. So even if it doesn't take the outward form of trying to hurt or kill someone, it's still hatred. It's hatred. So, so that's the list of characteristics of what we used to be, right? Paul says, at one time we too were. And he's pointing out our rebellion prior to our relationship with Jesus Christ. And he's reminding the saints there in Crete and all of us as believers of their and our former despicable, degrading or degraded, despairing condition. And he's emphasizing the fact that every believer is, listen now, is nothing more than a depraved sinner who has experienced the transforming grace of God. Spurgeon said this, no man here has any idea of how bad he really is. 
You do not know how good the grace of God can make you, nor how bad you are by nature, nor how bad you might become if that nature were left to itself. Well, there's a lesson. Here's a lesson. We always have a lesson, don't we? Remember that we were once just like ungodly people. Remember that we were once just like ungodly people. Friends, listen now. If you're safe, say amen. We, walk, we all walked in rebellion. We all lived in sin. We all were disobedient prior to our salvation. Listen, therefore, therefore, we have no reason to develop a self-righteous, condescending attitude of condemning toward, of condemnation, excuse me, of condemnation toward unbelievers. Now listen, unbelievers behave the way they do because they're unbelievers. They remain in sin. That's their job description. And we get all upset at, why are they acting this way? Well, that's the way they are. That's their job description. Now, let's be honest. It's easy to become angry and impatient with unbelievers who act like selfish jerks. I get that. But listen, listen. If we want to behave as godly people towards them, then we need to remember, say, remember that before we met Jesus, we acted in the same way that they do. So keeping in mind how we used to be will enable us, say that, enable us to treat non-believers with grace, love, and compassion. Can I get an amen? So point number one is our godlessness. Point number two is God's graciousness. God's graciousness. Our godlessness, number two, is God's graciousness. So Paul just gave us a reminder of what we used to be, right? And now he turns our attention to what we are, what we are now. In verse 3, we were active in sin without God. And here in verses 4 through 7, God is active in salvation, changing what we could not change ourselves. So five sub-points. Here we go. If you're ready, say yes. Come on. Say yes. First sub-point is His, speaking of God, His intervention. His intervention. Write that down. And we're going to look at verse 4. And Paul opens up verse 4 by saying, but. That word but takes us back to see the depths of our sin, Okay, from which God rescued us. Okay, in other words, what happened? What, what happened? What or, what or who made the difference? Well, it's God. He's the one who, who takes the initiative. He's the one who, who intervenes. So the text says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. Now, there are two big words there. The first one is kindness. Say that, kindness. And kindness refers to his action towards you and me. His action towards you and me. God is kind toward unholy people. And friends, even in our rebellion, even in our sin, He showed kindness because He waits patiently for people, for us to respond to Him. Now the truth is some people only view God as angry and judgmental and therefore want to avoid Him altogether. Well, Romans 2, 4, write that down. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 teaches that when we focus on his inerrant kindness, we will be moved to repentance. It says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? Listen, the kindness that comes our way from God, friends, is not because we're good, 
but because he is. He is. The second word there in the text is love. Say kindness, now say love. Love is his attitude. Kindness refers to his action. Love refers to his attitude. This word for love here in the text is not agape love, but rather the word from which we get philanthropy. This is the only time, this is now this word is used of God in the New Testament. The more usual word is agape, right, which occurs in John 3.16. Pastor John MacArthur defines it this way, speaking of the love in this text. Pity, compassion, and eagerness to deliver from pain or distress because of strong affection. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Come on, if you're saved, say amen. God didn't love us because we were worth loving, but rather because He is love. Someone say amen. Now say kindness. Say love. It's those two attributes, those, true, those two attributes that form the basis for salvation, for the salvation that becomes ours. Now friends, if He would not have intervened in our lives, we would still be lost. We would be bound in sin, separated from God, and destined for eternal judgment. You see, we were disobedient, and we were living in sin, but thank God, someone say thank God, that He intervened in our lives to save us, which brings us to the next sub-point is our salvation. His intervention, notice our salvation. That's the next sub-point, our salvation. Look at verse 5a with me. If you're loving this, say amen. Verse 5a, He saved us, listen now what He says, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because, I love this, because of His mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. I'm going to say it again. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Being sinners, being sinners, we deserve, we deserve eternal separation and punishment. We deserve what? Hell, Right? We were undeserving and incapable of saving ourselves. Remember how Paul describes us in verse 3? Not a good thing, right? Now listen, the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church and every non-Christian religion, uh, every cult, teach that somehow our good works play a part in our salvation. But if you go through the... If you go through Paul's writings, you will note how often he makes it very, very clear, friends, that our works have absolutely no part, say no part, in saving us. And here, here's a few verses I want to share with you that Paul writes, Galatians 2, 21. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21 says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. I'm going to read that again. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, good works, Christ died for nothing. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 says, God, who has saved us and called us with His holy calling, a holy calling, not according to our works. Did you get that? Not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted to 
us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, we know this right. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as, listen now, not as a result of works that no one may boast. And here in the text, I just read it to you, right? Paul says, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. You see, salvation is all him. It's all him. It's God-centered, God-originated, God-implemented. It's his work, and it's our gift. We are saved by God's work, not by our good works. I love this poem, and it reads like this. Tears unavailing, no merit had I. Mercy had saved me, or else I must die. Sin had alarmed me, fearing God's face. But now I'm a sinner saved by his grace. That's awesome. I love that. Well, there's a lesson. Here's a lesson. If we receive mercy when we deserve judgment, then show God's kindness, love, and mercy to unbelievers who don't deserve it. I'm going to say it again. If we receive mercy when we deserve judgment, then show God's kindness, love, and mercy to unbelievers who don't deserve it. Got it? Who don't deserve it. Let's move on. Verse 5b. Verse 5b. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. I'm going to read that again. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. Now, these words are commonly taken uh, as a reference to baptism. And this passage is sometimes quoted in support of the idea of baptismal regeneration, which is a belief that baptism is necessary for salvation. Well, Paul doesn't specifically mention baptism here. And the only uh, other use of the ancient Greek word translated washing here in the text is connected with the spiritual cleansing of the believer. Listen, washing, say that, washing is a metaphor for spiritual cleansing rather than for baptism. In fact, if baptism is a requirement or necessary for salvation, then that would listen up, then that would be salvation by what? Works. And we know that we're saved by grace, not by works. So Paul is saying, so what Paul is saying, excuse me, what Paul is saying here is that when we become Christians independent of works, when in faith we receive Jesus Christ, we got a spiritual bath. Someone say amen. We get a brand new white slate, and it's all brand new in God's sight, totally cleansed and forgiven. And this is what we call, listen now, this is what we call regeneration. Say regeneration. Regeneration is a single event, one-time thing, regeneration. Let's move on, verse 5c. And renewal by the Holy Spirit. Read that again. And renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to follow me here, okay? The work of regeneration is a single event, one-time event. But the renewing... The renewing is a lifelong process. Got it? A lifelong process. And this is what we call sanctification. Sanctification. And this is the Holy Spirit's ministry of sanctifying us in our daily life. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the most active member of the Godhead in salvation. 
And what he does, he renews the inward believer day by day. He's the master teacher. He guides us into all truth. In fact, he is in fact the one who seals us for our our eternal destiny. I love that. Ephesians 4.30 says this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we're not only renewed by the Holy Spirit, but also God has poured out His Spirit on us richly or generously through Jesus Christ. So how do we know that? Look at verse 6. Whom He, speaking of God, poured out on us generously or richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. In other words, there is no lack of supply on Jesus' part for our spiritual needs. I'm going to say it again. There is no lack of supply on Jesus' part for our spiritual needs. Don't you love that? I love that. That being said, we need to ask ourselves, do I experience the fullness of God's Spirit in my life? Do, do, I, do I know in my daily walk the fullness of His Spirit? If not, why not? Could it be that there's some sin in my life that's blocking His fullness? Is my focus too much on the things of the world? Do I daily operate more in dependence on my own abilities rather than relying on God's Holy Spirit? Huh? Listen, if there is lack of anything, it's in us, not in Him. And I want you to get this. The main evidence of the Spirit's fullness in our lives will be the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 manifested in and through our daily lives. Amen? Now, I want to, I want to, point, I want to point something out before we go to the next subpoint. I want you to look at verse 4. Let's go back to verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God, say God, our Savior appeared, then look at verse 5. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Say God, say Holy Spirit. Look at verse 6. Whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Verse 4, God. Verse 5, Holy Spirit. Verse 6, Jesus Christ. Did you get it? Did you get it? All three persons of the Trinity are involved in this amazing, awesome, wonderful, incredible work of salvation. Someone say amen. Next sub-point is our justification. Write that down. Our justification. Our justification. Look at verse 7a. Verse 7a, so that having been justified by His grace. This doctrine is discussed fully in the book of Romans. And one example is found in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, Romans 3, 24. It says, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. It's awesome. Justification refers to the act of God whereby He makes the sinner righteous. Just as if I never sin, or you've never sinned. Warren Wiersbe defines justification this way, and I love it. Justification is the gracious act of God whereby he declares a believing sinner righteous because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. God puts to our account the righteousness of his Son so that we can be condemned no more. If you're saved, say amen. 
Come on, if you're saved, say amen. The right, listen, if you're saved, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to your account. How awesome is that? Listen, the sin of your past is removed. It's forgotten, friends. You were once considered unworthy. You were once considered condemned. But now you're declared righteous, declared righteous in the eyes of the Father. And you have a perfect righteous standard before him that will never, 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 never change. The next sub-point is our uh, preservation. Our preservation. Write that down. Our preservation. Preservation. Look at verse 7b. We might become errors. And I want to stop there. We might become errors. You know what an error is? An error is someone who's going to receive something. So if, you, if you're saved, then you're in line to receive an incredible inheritance. Awesome inheritance. Now, do we deserve this? No. You and I, we don't deserve this, okay? But we receive it because of His grace. And you see, as believers, we are beneficiaries of his blessings because of what Christ has done for us. We are heirs of the Holy One. Friends, listen, heirs of all, heirs of all that God has in store for us in glory. Someone say amen. Let's read on. The hope of eternal life. The hope of eternal life. You ought to underline that, highlight that, circle that. Listen, eternal life begins the moment you and I are saved. And when we die... We will leave this tent, our body, but we will live forever. And you can count on the promise of Jesus from John 10, 28. John 10, excuse me, 10, 28, where it says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that awesome? Listen, knowing that he saves us and that he keeps us saved, in other words, that he preserves us, means that instead of living in the fear of death or the fear of hell and the fear of eternal punishment and under the power of sin, we live with the hope of eternal life. The hope, say hope, of spending eternity in the presence of Jesus. Amen, amen, amen. And by the way, friends, in the original language, verses 4 through 7 are really one long sentence, and, and many commentators believe that this, is, that this was a creed that the early Christians recited or even sang out loud. And through repetition, they committed to it, they committed, committed it to memory. And I would encourage all of us to do the same. I'm going to try to do that as well. Amen. And the last sub-point is our transformation. Say that, our transformation. I love this. And look at verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. Trustworthy saying refers back to the long sentence that runs from verses 4 through 7. Got it? Let's read on. And I want you to stress these things. The word stress means to affirm constantly so that we will never stop speaking, speaking, speaking of salvation and celebrating the transformation that only Christ can bring to a life. These things, these things, refers to the same sentence, these great doctrinal truths about our salvation. So listen, Paul wants Titus to continue speaking these truths with confidence so that believers will be careful to engage in good deeds, in good works. Look at the, look at the next 
well, the rest of the text, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. To devote themselves to doing what is good or to maintain to doing what is good. These things, he says, are excellent and profitable for everyone. So Paul challenged Titus to continually, continually excuse me, affirm the truths he had received, being faithful to proclaim the word of God, and in turn, and in turn, friends, this would ensure those who heard and obeyed the word would live lives worthy, would live lives worthy, get this now, of their calling. Oh, what's their calling? Their calling, our calling, is salvation. It's salvation. That their life, their walk, ought to measure up, that our life, our walk, ought to measure up, be consistent with our calling. In other words, if we say that we're saved, then our lives should match that. Got it? We say we're saved, it should match that. It scales, axios, the word axios. And Paul's point is that we are to live our lives in a way that reveals, get this now, the transformation that has taken place through salvation in Jesus Christ. It's living according to the word of God that results in good works and possesses a positive Christian witness. This would be profitable to the church and to society. Paul says these things are excellent and profitable for everyone, right? If you're safe, say amen. Listen, it isn't enough just to know what the Bible teaches. We must, as believers, we must put it into practice in everyday life. Get this, sound doctrine is not for useless speculation, but for practical application. I'm going to say it again. Sound doctrine is not for useless spe speculation, but for practical application. Love that. And I want to tell you, friends, hey, listen now. Hey, if, if we live no differently than the average person, never considering the needs of others or, or sacrificing our time to serve God, in order to serve God and serve others, the world will see no difference in our lives. So there's a lesson. And what's the lesson? Here's the lesson. If we say we believe, if we say we believe as believers, if we say we believe, then we ought to match our belief with action. I'm going to say it again. If we say we believe, then we ought to match our belief with action. Action. So follow me here. A good faith does good works. Recipients of grace are to be givers of good. Worship, listen now, should lead to works. Salvation expresses itself in acts of service. Are you getting this? Now, again, we're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. What did James say? James say, what did he say in, in James 2:17? Faith without works is dead. Now, the expression of good works, say good works, occurs 14 times, 14 times in the letters to Timothy and Titus. In fact, good works is a major theme in both the book of Timothy and Titus. In fact, there are five instances 
from Titus here, and I want to give them to you in chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7 says to be an example by doing what is good. Chapter 2, verse 7, be an example, be an example by doing what is good. Chapter 2, verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14 says, be eager to do what is good. Are you guys getting this? Chapter 3, verse 1, remember this? Be ready to do whatever is good. Be ready to do whatever is good. Chapter 3, verse 8, be careful to devote ourselves to what is good, right? What is good? And then in chapter 3, verse 14, this chapter 3, verse 14, do good in order to live productive lives. That's the major thing, doing good. If we're believers, if we're saved, then we're going to do good works. It's an automatic thing, friends. In Timothy, in 1 Timothy, excuse me, in 1 Timothy Chapter 6, verse 18. 1 Timothy 6, 18. Paul ch challenged Christians not to be rich in dollars, but to be rich in deeds. He says this, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Now, if you're safe, say amen. Come on, if you're safe, say amen. Listen, God didn't save us just to keep us out of hell. He saved us, friends, to put us to work for Him and to be a witness, say witness, friends, to those around us by serving them and doing good to them. Doing good to them. There's more to the Christian life than just going to heaven. It's great, we're going to go to be with Christ. Great, but we got work to do while we're here. Warren Wiersbe said this, and I love it. Good works doesn't necessarily mean religious works or church work. It's fine to work at church, sing in the choir, or hold an office. But it's also good to serve our unsaved neighbors, to be helpful in our community, and to have a reputation for assisting those in need. I love that. I totally love that. So let's wrap this up. If you're saved, say amen. Listen, we were a mess in distress, right? Say that. We were a mess in distress, but God. Someone say that. But God came to our rescue through the redeeming work of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And you see, what I love about Christianity is that it teaches conversion through a rescuing relationship. We were lost, but now we're found. We were enemies of God, but now we're at peace with God. We were enslaved, but now we're free. We're saved from God's wrath by God's redemption. Can someone say amen? I want to close the message by reading this passage to you. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9. Ephesians 2. 2 verses 1 through 9. And it says this. Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Verse 4, but, it's a good word, but because of His 
great love for us. God, say God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you and I have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the exceeding riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's the way of salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your kindness, for your love, for your mercy, and Lord, for your grace. Thank you for the free gift of salvation found only in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, friends, if, if you desire to trust Jesus Christ to come into your life, to follow him, to receive him today, If that's you, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes and repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner and I need you to come into my life to save me, to cleanse me, and to change me. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord and believe within my heart that God raised you from the dead. I receive you this day. I am saved sealed, sanctified, satisfied, justified, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me today. And I will serve you and love you from this day forth until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you made the decision, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at cryout.org. That's contact at cryout.org if you made that decision. Well, friends, love you and God bless you. Have a wonderful day and I will see you all next week.